daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Coming up, Chinese President Xi Jinping meets with U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken in Beijing. What significance does it hold for China-U.S. relations? Chinese Premier Li Qiang is in Germany for his first overseas trip since taking office. What will be on the top of his agenda? Foreign ministers of Saudi Arabia and Iran meet in Tehran amid warming ties. What does it mean for regional peace and stability? First, on today's show, Chinese President Xi Jinping says he hopes U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken will help improve bilateral relations following his visit to China. State-to-state interactions should always be based on mutual respect and sincerity. I hope that through this visit, Mr. Secretary, you will make more positive contributions to stabilizing China-U.S. relations. While meeting Blinken in Beijing, the Chinese president also said he welcomes the progress the two countries have made. The Chinese side has made our position clear, and the two sides have agreed to follow through the common understandings President Biden and I had reached in Bali. The two sides have also made progress and reached agreement on some specific issues. This is very good. Blinken has also met with senior Chinese diplomat Wang Yi and Chinese Foreign Minister Qing Gong during his visit. Guo Yan has more. The senior Chinese diplomat says both sides should follow the principles of mutual respect, peaceful coexistence, and win-win cooperation. Wang Yi said bilateral relations are at a low level because the United States is harboring wrong perceptions of China. He urged the U.S. to work with China to manage their differences. The diplomat demanded that the U.S. lift unilateral sanctions on China and also not interfere in China's internal affairs. He stressed that China will not compromise on the Taiwan question and urged the U.S. to abide by the One China principle and the three joint communiques between the two countries. Blinken said the U.S. is committed to returning to the agenda agreed on by the presidents of the two countries in Bali and looks forward to more communication and cooperation with China. On the first day of his visit in China, Blinken held talks with Chinese Foreign Minister Qing Gang. The two officials had candid, in-depth, and constructive discussions about relations between the two countries. They agreed to maintain high-level exchanges. Blinken also invited Qin to visit the United States. That's Guo Yan reporting. And for more, we are now joined on the line by Zhu Feng, Dean and Professor of International Studies at Nanjing University, and Harvey Zoden, former Vice President of ABC TV Network and Senior Fellow of the Center for China and Globalization. Gentlemen, welcome to our show. Thank you. Well, Thanks a lot. Professor Zhu, um, as President Xi Jinping said, China and the U.S. have agreed to follow through the common understanding he and President Biden had reached in Bali. How important is this progress and what does it say about the significance of Blinken's visit to China? Okay, a good question. I think the summit consensus reached by first top leader at the Bali, I think, was a big signal that both powers just as thought to, you know, as they move toward each other and just annihilating their difference and also seeking some sort of uh, uh, international uh, spaces to intensify the cooperation. That kind of a consensus proved to be eventually some sort of a leading principle to, to guide future evolution of a polarization. But unfortunately, since the uh, Bali summit meeting, a couple of the, you know, the uh, things happened very badly, just uh, how they brought down the relationship into some sort of new, dangerous, abrim point. So then this time when the uh, Secretary of State Brinken uh, visited Beijing, I think on both sides uh, jointly, and also very, very clearly uh, re-emphasized some sort of uh, such a, a Bali summit consensus. I think it's a very positive signal that both sides could not just have a uh, uh, welcoming of uh, 
Mr. Blinken's, you know, visit China as an occasional, some sort of event, then some sort of a regular uh, resumption of the uh, communication channel and uh, working together prevention, in prevention uh, from some sort of escalating of the conflict and uh, reducing, at the meantime, the misperception always will be just uh, how it resumes. So that's why I consider, yeah, it's a very positive achievement by the uh, Secretary of State uh, Blinken's recent visit. Mm-hmm. So Harvey, what do you make of the significance of, of Blinken's trip to China? Because he's the highest level American official to visit China since Biden took office and also the first U.S. Secretary of State to make the trip in nearly five years. So what message do you think uh, the trip send uh, in terms of the current state of China-U.S. ties? The fact that it was held sends the message that relations were at a very, very bad place. And that uh, if we hadn't uh, gone on a course correction, that we might have uh, accidentally or on purpose uh, found ourselves uh, in a war. You know, Henry Kissinger said recently, if our uh, current trajectory of the bilateral relations were uh, continued, that we would go to war. So I think that the meetings uh, the three meetings, especially the meeting with the President Xi, confirmed that both sides want to step back from the edge, that both sides want to try to work out uh, some of the most important differences and want to manage uh, our relations better. Yes, we're in a conflict, but it's a conflict that needs to be managed because the consequences of not managing it are so profound. So I believe that the meetings uh, had a very good and strong outcome and that now we can proceed on addressing the issues that face us in a more business-like manner. And I hope that in the future, in the near future, that there might be a meeting between President Biden and President Xi later in the year. Okay. Um, So, Zhu Feng, President Xi said that whether China and the U.S. can find uh, the right way to get along bears on the future and destiny of of human society. And he said that uh, planet Earth is big enough to accommodate the respective development and common prosperity of China and the U.S. What do you make of those comments? Yeah, I think President Xi made a point about about China's vision on how U.S. China China U.S. relations will be uh, just a following through, but yeah, it's not easy because uh, by nature, with the international politics, actually is the uh, endless competition among the powers for wealth, for uh, interest, and for power. So then, from this point, I think President Xi's you know, assertion is representing some sort of the Chinese vision on how a rising China will not just have a step up, some sort of a, such a, a very, very, we say, cautious, you know, escalation of the great powers, you know, the confrontation. That kind of the Chinese stance has been just made clear for long. But the problem is, as I mentioned, uh, U.S.-China relations now is not just in very bad shape, in bad place. Then we will see some sort of uh, domestic sources of some sort of a confronting China assertion is also very popular in the Washington, D.C. So therefore, I see it's not easy for Chinese assertion could just uh, have a truly and very clearly win the positive echoing from the Washington, D.C. But the problem is, what's the art of the diplomacy by nature? It's always art for seeking some sort of a compromise and cooperation. So then I really uh, enjoyed the China's, uh, with the repetition of the Chinese assertion, uh, uh, bilaterally and multilaterally. So then uh, of the Chinese view also could be, could be finally and eventually winning the real you know, emphasis from our American counterpart. But on the other hand, I think the front Chinese position where totally reject, reject restaging of the new Cold War. We totally refuse some sort of a confrontation 
around the fractional, you know, line in international politics, because that would be very deadly harmful to the China's re-emergency. So that's why I consider the most important thing for the uh, say endless communication between the Beijing and the Washington is sooner or later the American friends could finally recognize that China is really not in any position to compete the U.S. for some sort of uh, international predominance. The China just trying to keep it going, growing, and developing. Yeah, and that, that's how somehow being echoed by a senior Chinese diplomat Wang Yi during his meeting with uh, Blinken. Uh, Wang Yi said that um, China and U.S. relationship is at a low point, with the root cause being U.S.'s wrong perception of China. So, Harvey, how do you interpret this, and and, and what do you think has led to America's wrong perception of China? Yeah, I think uh, Wang Yi's comment is is generally fair. To me. The U.S. is like a small child who doesn't want to share his toys. But we're not playing games in a sandbox here because we're in the nuclear age of real politique. And the U.S. is fueled by a concept called American exceptionalism. And that says we're a nation chosen by God to lead the world. And at the same time, I think Wang Yi was alluding to the fact that we're walking into the Thucydides trap that historical trend where arising nations perceived as a threat to an established nation and frequently goes to war. So throughout its storied history, actually, China was a peaceful nation when it came to its neighbors, and it remains so today. And I always think now about uh, what the president I worked for, Jimmy Carter, told Donald Trump, who was complaining to him about China getting ahead of the U.S. Carter said, the U.S. is the most warlike nation in the history of the world, a country at peace for only 17 of its then 242 years as a nation. I hope these meetings that have been held uh, the last two days will get us back on a track to civility and peace and managing uh, the relations that we have and we're managing the issues where our national interests uh, overlap. Okay, so so Zhu Feng, as we know, Wang Yi also asked the U.S. to stop hyping up the China threat theory, lift unlawful unilateral sanctions against China, and stop his attempts to suppress China's technological development. Um, how how do you look at this, and and what factors do do you believe have contributed to the emergence of the China threat theory and its um subsequent impact on China-U.S. ties? Yeah, uh, well, because. Uh, who uh, do you want to answer? Uh, Mr. Zhu, please. Okay, sure. Okay, yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I think uh, uh, China's threat, um, of course, is broadly and also profoundly just fanned uh, uh, out from Americans, you know, uh, government officials, congressmen, and even American media. The most of uh, uh, very, very important factors behind some sort of such a China threat, you know, assumption is it's a, some sort of American traditional methodology to to confront its arrival. Usually, U.S. proved to be much smarter than Chinese. If they want people of China pounce harder, they should have first uh, just uh, demonize the China and uh, winning some sort of all the legitimacy in conference in China. So China's threat theory also tell us very, very vividly, you know, when the great pocket in falling into the competition, some sort of a, such a demonization usually is a very inevitable tactic to legitimize the, some sort of a, such a confrontational, you know, strategy. So that's why I see the China's threat is not how groundless or how grounded. But it's also some sort of ingredients of Americans confronting and arriving the China strategy. Mm-hmm. So when Wang Yi made the point, U.S. should stop, stop fanning out the China threat. I think it's also some sort of uh, 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 Chinese uh, real, you know, strategic, you know, the demands for the U.S. Yes, you can compete with China, but don't 
just to demonize the China in all the ways. U.S. just a very carefully, just a, you know, uh, employed. Otherwise, then we will see such a China uh, threat assertion will always reduce the domestic political incentive to get relations better managed. Furthermore, some sort of uh, such a, we say, uh, a simmering of the China threat assertion also will stiffen some sort of uh, such a uh, resolution to confront the China and also reduce the, any possibility of a reconciliation. So I think the, when the, uh, Wang Yi, Mr. Wang Yi made that point, I think it also is very vivid evidence that China now is highly aware, some sort of uh, such an American-China threat, you know, the view and the perception now is very, very poisonous. Mm-hmm. Harvey, anything you want to add? Uh, no, I think the professor covered it uh, mm-hmm. quite well. Okay, then let's take a look uh, at the Taiwan question because uh, China has pointed out that this is the core of China's core interests and uh, there's no room for compromise on this question. However, um, Harvey, uh, we, as we can see, uh, the United States has not ceased and has even intensified its provocative actions in the Taiwan Straits in recent years. Uh, no, what do you think are the reasons behind this? Well, I think, again, uh, it's our uh, American exceptionalism. Um, We're a country actually uh, driven by racism, a country that had very exclusionary policies against the Chinese after they helped us build the transcontinental railway and uh, put Japanese people in concentration camps and and things like that. So I think racism is a a part of it. But um, I also think that Um, Since the Shanghai communique was signed a half century ago, the U.S. has been slicing away at our express acknowledgement there's only one China. And this trend greatly accelerated under Trump and Pompeo, who are Republicans, and Nancy Pelosi, a Democrat, and remarkably continued under Biden, a Democrat. And he should know better because he became a senator about the same time as uh, uh, Nixon's visit to uh, China. And he should have restrained hawks like uh, Blinken and Sullivan from going as far as they had. I hope in the meetings that have been held with Blinken and the Chinese officials the last two days, that reason will once again prevail and become more businesslike. And we can get on to addressing the many, many, many issues uh, that we share in common. Okay, so um, Professor Zhu, why do you think the United States has stepped up as provocative, provocative actions in the Taiwan Straits in recent years? Um, yeah, it's a, a little bit complicated, but as I say, so now the America's China policy is completely changed. So uh, the Washington DC is not just taking China as the number one strategic competitors, but also just, uh, you know, uh, some sort of uh, 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 global-wide national security gravity also accordingly change over from, the uh, you know, the Europe and the Middle East to confront the China. So from this point, then it's not just a policy change. It's Americans' anti-security strategy change. That's why we consider no matter how, even political level, uh, uh, two government high-ranking officials could have just meeting, um, just as the, uh, Mr. Sullivan, uh, Mr. Brinken's visit to China. It's, it's also fruitful and also constructive by the province and time machine of Americans' China policy. Mm-hmm. It's eventually changed a lot. So then, no matter how we can just reopen that the channel of the communication and uh, some sort of a regular uh, interactions also could have been hitting back, but some sort of basic term of American-China policy were not just, uh, how say, uh, eventually just uh, uh, change in a policy, on a positive direction. So all some sort of a, such a accidental event, even if it happened, then falling into the eyesight, probably will be overplayed based on some sort of uh, China threat assertion, 
and the Damascus political, you know, the 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 capitalization, then our relations is still at some sort of a very, you know, uh, very shaky position. Mm-hmm. Okay, but Professor Zhufun, as we all know, this uh, is a, a long-anticipated trip because uh, Blinken's original travel plan uh, was in February and uh, that was postponed after the so-called balloon incident. So what do you think has prompted the re-engagement at this particular moment? Um, no, I don't think so. I, mm-hmm. I just think, you know, the, 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 in one way, the great power competition will be just uh, intensified. Mm-hmm. It's uh, some sort of reciprocal. It's uh, two tracks, you know, interactions. So no matter how the American size will overplay some sort of such an incident, but the problem is the Beijing also made it clear. So we're never determined to take the new Cold War with American counterpart. China will totally reject, you know, the, some sort of a, such a confrontation around the fractal, you know, the, 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 the device. So that's why I found this view, how to make our relations manageable. Finally, and very, very virtually, I think it is uh, some sort of a great power responsibility. So from this point, I'm still a little bit, you know, uh, less pessimistic uh, about our bilateral relations. Yes, U.S. will pushing harder against China, but China will fighting back. But the promise, the Chinese strategic culture is always reject. Reject what? Reject some sort of with an instant, you know, deterioration, instant collapse of our relationship. So then um, the, the, the Americans' counterparts also should recognize the Chinese strategic culture. So we will not just, uh, how say, uh, falling into uh, the uh, new Cold War with the United States. But now the uh, this trap is really just the overdrowning the both power. But it doesn't mean our relations is really have no way to step back from the cliff. Mm-hmm. Harvey, your thought on this? Because um, actually we hear from Joe Biden earlier that um, he believed China-U.S. relations would begin to thaw very shortly. Why did he say that? I still don't know why he said that. Um, but I think the fact that these meetings are taking place may be one evidence of that. And the fact that uh, President Biden and she could meet in a few months is also another fact. So I think there's a realization that we got too close to the edge and we had to step back. And we're stepping back by these meetings and by continuing to hold meetings in the future. And hopefully uh, other cabinet members are going to come to China in the near future, like the Treasury Secretary, the Commerce Secretary. So I think this represents a potential reset. Mm-hmm. Okay, and 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 Professor Zhu, very briefly, uh, we know that prior to Blinken's visit, President Xi also met with Bill Gates in Beijing, and he emphasized that the foundation of China-U.S. relations lies in the people. How do you look at that? Yeah, I can't can't believe in this Chinese thought anymore because the reason is very simple. Politically, we also see that both countries truly. That's some sort of rivaling, you know, the, the front. But the problem is, look at the China-U.S. relations since the President Nixon's historical visit to China. Our relationship, in all terms, is highly interdependent. So from this point, people-to-people relations always will lay out the solid foundation to underline the, you know, the extension of our relations, no matter how political climate change dramatically. Thank you, Professor Zhu Fun, Dean of International Studies at Nanjing University, and Harvey Zoden, former Vice President of ABC TV Network and Senior Fellow of the Center for China and Globalization. You're listening to World Today. We'll be back in a minute.
Welcome back. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Chinese Premier Li Qiang says Beijing is ready to explore further cooperation potential with Berlin and push for new development in bilateral ties. Li made the comment upon his arrival in the German capital. He noted that more chaos and challenges the world witnesses, the stronger the need for the two peoples to carry forward their traditional friendship, enhance exchanges and cooperation, put together wisdom, overcome challenges, and seize opportunities. The Chinese Premier will also hold the seventh China-Germany intergovernmental consultation in Berlin. For more, we are now joined on the line by Dr. Wang Yiwei, Jean Monnet, Chair Professor at Renmin University of China. Dr. Wang, thanks for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. Um, so what is the Chinese Premier hoping to achieve through his trip to Berlin, and what issues will be discussed during the visit? Well, firstly, this is the first uh, visit uh, for Premier Li Qiang, and also it's for the, the new Chinese government. The first trip, uh, I think, is very crucial. And uh, secondly, China-German uh, government-government consulting dialogue is very crucial also. Uh, among all the Western countries, this is uh, very unique, maybe the only one. And uh, thirdly, uh, now China-German relations, China-EU uh, relations uh, cannot be hijacked by the Ukraine crisis. We should have our... Uh, uh, Back to the normal uh, consulting track, I think it's very crucial, not for bilateral relations, but for China and the EU relations, and also uh, it's very crucial for the uh, supply, global supply chain to support the globalization. Yeah, and, and actually Li Qiang said that the more chaos and changes the world witnesses, the stronger is the need for the two peoples to carry forward their traditional friendship. How do we understand this? Well, yes, indeed, uh, China and Germany have many problems now, uh, not just the traditional uh, Amer- uh, German concerns like the uh, Chinese uh, market access and IPR protection. And uh, from the Chinese side, we also have so many concerns about so-called de-risk and also uh, about uh, uh, the different attitudes uh, to uh, the Americans' so-called the Asia-Pacific or uh, Indo-Pacific strategy. Of course, many problems and the new problems now coming, uh, like uh, the depth, uh, the global uh, depth problem, uh, even uh, and also uh, the uh, hunger problem. The many, uh, you know, 800 million people without enough food uh, after the three years pandemic, and also uh, climate change uh, cooperation. So many challenges. We need uh, actually to have a smart uh, solution for that. Uh, that's basically the Li Chang highlights. Uh, we need to uh, we, we need to go beyond the traditional uh, track to seek the more solution. Yeah, and and as we know, Chancellor Scholz's cabinet recently adopted Germany's first ever national security strategy, which describes China as an act as acting increasingly as a competitor and rival to Berlin. But also, it it admits that without Beijing, many global challenges and crises cannot be solved. How do you look at that? Well, that uh, means the Germans' views of China from two uh, tracks. First, from bilateral. Uh, uh, traditional uh, views, of course, there are many challenges, even so-called rival, uh, from the, uh, China's model, uh, China's uh, as a world factory, China as a global player. However, uh, to solve the, uh, the, the, the common problems, to deal with the many challenges, they also need China collaboration. Uh, I just come back from, from Berlin, actually attending the Global Solutions Summit, where the Chancellor of Truth also uh, met the uh, Kind of speech, uh, well, uh, he identified that uh, the multipolar world is the factor, is a, uh, is not the goal. And secondly, uh, there's no uh, so-called decouple uh, from China, and uh, we need to cooperate with China to to, uh, to address our common challenges. Yeah, and and you mentioned about de-risking, and uh, Olaf Scholz actually said that he agreed with Ursula von der Leyen on what on what he described as smart. Risking. How do you look at that, and and what does that mean for China-Germany relations? That's a very uh, clever saying about the smart de-risking. Uh, firstly, uh, they changed the tone from the decouple from de-risk uh, because decouple that means you will cut the linkage with China. Uh, the world will be uh, built to a different system. Of course, that Germany cannot suffer. Yeah, in the in general, European Union can also 
cannot suffer that kind of uh, risk uh, because they are very highly uh, depends on the external market, the support multilaterally, the support the globalization. So they need China's market, need to collaborate with China. But the risk uh, basically is focused on the supply chain. Uh, the too much, not just uh, made in China uh, products and also uh, raw materials, too much rely on China, maybe it's too dangerous. But uh, because China is a world factory and also uh, is coming to the world uh, market, so the risk from China, uh, from German's perspective, they want to different with the Americans' de risk maybe, uh, because the Americans use the de risk maybe it's the de facto of the decouple or gradually decouple. So German uh, with the so-called smart de risking, they have their own uh, strategic autonomy for, from the European Union side or German side. So we, maybe we can accept this uh, so-called smart de-risking, not in the name of the de-risking, but it's six the de facto decouple. Well, actually, we see that uh, many German companies, including uh, its car makers and some industrial giants, they are determined to defend and expand their presence in China. Uh, h- how do you look at this? And, and do you think they can continue to resist the pressure from uh, from the German government? Of course, they cannot because uh, uh, China, as a uh, you know, uh, the factories, uh, as a world factory, and also a very dynamic market, is very crucial for these uh, German companies, uh, particularly for the car makers. But at the same time, the Chinese uh, electronic cars also uh, compete with the Germans made in Germany. Uh, but the in the so-called smart de-risking strategy, now German. Uh, invest in China's market. This is only served for the Chinese domestic market, not as traditionally they invest in China, but served for the world market. So in this regard, uh, smart de-risking is happening. Okay, I see. And 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 also we know the upcoming seventh joint German-Chinese government consultations will be the first face-to-face meeting since the pandemic. What do you think we can expect from their consultations? Well, uh, definitely the negotiation we need face-to-face. Uh, it's not just uh, online talking uh, because uh, people uh, it's very emotional, not too much rational. Uh, we need to make friends. We need to... Uh, to make the simultaneous response from what you're saying, not just through the internet uh, or phone. I think that's very important. So we need more people-to-people connections, not just the government officials, mutual visits. This is, uh, the world is globalized, cannot be decoupled in this regard. What do you think are the potential areas for further cooperation between China and Germany? Well, there, there are many uh, areas we need urgently to cooperate. For instance, uh, in, in September, there is a midterm for SDG uh, evaluation for the UN. Actually, now, because of the Ukraine crisis, the many Europeans actually forget about that. The developing issue is really crucial for the whole world. But uh, France will host of the so-called new contract of the, uh, to deal with the global uh, debt problem. Germany also very active to, uh, to, to, to uh, involved in this. So we need to talk about the global, you know, hunger problem, the global debt problem, and global uh, climate change, of course, and even about uh, uh, Ukraine crisis itself, and about uh, globalization, uh, the future uh, for the bilateral uh, market mutual access. Uh, how to make the uh, uh, com- uh, comprehensive investment treaty between China and the European Union, directly or selectively work? This is also very crucial for both sides. Thank you, Dr. Wang Yiwei, Jean Monnet, Chair Professor at Renmin University of China. You're listening to World Today. We'll be back. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. The European Central Bank has raised its benchmark interest rate to 3.5%, the highest since May 2001. The bank says persistently high inflation means more hikes are likely. ECB President Christian Lagarde made it clear that inflation is still far too high in Europe, with the target being 2% and the current rate 6.1%. 
What are the main drivers of inflation in Europe besides rising energy costs, and how will the ECB rate hikes affect the eurozone economy? For more, my colleague Zhao Yang spoke with Yan Liang, professor of economics at Willamette University. So, Yan, thank you for your time. The ECB raised the interest rates to the highest level since 2001, and the bank signaled that it would raise them again later this year. So, what do you make of this move by the ECB? Right. So when you listen to the ECB's president,、uh, Ms. Lagarde, so what she basically saying is that we're not there to our destination, which is, you know, inflation rate needs to be、um, capped at two percent.、Um, and right now, the inflation rate has gone down from the peak, but is still, you know,、um, the euro area, the inflation rate is six point one percent, the latest number in May, and the core inflation,、uh, which include excludes, you know,、um, energy and food. Still stood at 5.3 percent. So this is、um, still above the two percent, you know, target the ECB sets, and therefore、um, they're, you know, raising their interest rate this time, and they hinted there will be more raises down the road.、Um, so they're pretty、um, at this point, I think, determined. To continue the rate hikes in order to bring down the inflation,、um, but definitely, you know, there are already a lot of weakening,、um, weakening signal in the economy, and so I think that is. Um, a very tricky question.、Mm. As you mentioned, the ECB、mm-hmm. warns that inflation will be too high for too long. So, what are the main reasons for the high inflation in Europe? Right. So, for Europe, the biggest、uh, reason I think has to do with energy and food crisis, and a lot of that has to do with Russia and Ukraine conflict.、Um, so that drives up energy cost and food cost. Um, and then on top of that, there has been, you know, de- declining productivity in、um, euro、uh, euro area, and so all of these would then,、um, you know, drive up the,、um, you know, the the unemployment rate has been going down, but、uh, you know, the argument is this drives up wages. But I think the the other issues also have to do with the profit rates have been rising,、um, so all these basically you know produce these、um, sort of sticky inflation.、Um, and again, inflation has gone down from the peak, but it's still just higher than what the policymakers would like to be. And yeah, as you mentioned, one of the interesting aspects of all this,、uh, you know, one is the、uh, rising energy costs. But、uh, what Christine Lagarde said uh, uh, was that uh, uh, those energy costs are starting to come down. But a new problem has emerged. That is, the companies、uh, pushing up their prices in order to preserve their profits, and that in turn is putting pressure on both the inflation and the cost of living. So, how long can this be lingering there? Right, so I don't think the energy, you know, crisis, so to speak, or energy,、um, you know, continue、um, in- increasing energy price is, is,、uh, you know, sort of it- it's out of the picture yet. Um, I think previously there has been measures to contain the、uh, energy cost. You know, countries have been set set up their energy sort of storage.、Um, they had a pretty mild winter, and so that helped to conserve some of the uses of the energy. And they also have、um, kept some price control of you know electricity prices, for example, for consumers.、Uh, but now some of those measures are gone.、Um, their storage is not going to last forever. In France, they just recently、uh, lifted. The、uh, electricity、um, sort of price、uh, cap, and so now the electricity price、um, started to to rise、um, since February. So I don't think they're quite out of the woods yet when it comes to energy and food costs. And on top of that,、um, according to ECB, you know, research, some of their members、um, find out that、uh, since you know. Fourth quarter of 2022, half of the domestic price increase、um, comes from profit, and then the other half comes from wages. And so,、um, so we are right. I think you know it, it's not just that the, the usual claim that somehow wage drives you know prices, but in terms of Europe and the United States for that matter,、um, their profits are also a big contributor. And so that definitely also、um, is a factor to drive up inflation.、Mm. And productivity has also fallen. The ECB head says this issue is also driving up prices. So why do you think is productivity in the eurozone falling? Well, I think that has to do with you know their investment in education.、Um, I think France had this reckoning that their investment in education, especially like math skills, have not been sufficient. And Germany also had a similar、um, you know recognition that they simply did not invest enough 
in education. Um, and I think also there are you know, many other factors that could in some ways um, slow down their technological innovation, some sort of regulations, and also just the whole um, economic instability would you know, prevent investments and um, you know, technological innovations on the parts of the, the enterprises of, uh, you know, of the businesses. And Germany, the Eurozone's largest economy, entered a technical recession in quarter one. So what are the leading causes of that? Right. So as we all know, that Germany has been hard hit by, you know, the energy crises, the energy cost, um, and that it's not only, you know, taking the toll on their average, you know, citizens' daily lives, but also, you know, really in some ways, um, slow down their industrial production. And it resulted some companies moving away um, because, you know, their production is too energy intensive. So that de-industrialization um, is a real concern going forward. Um, but on top of that, I think the biggest reason for the economic recession, which is basically um, two consecutive quarters of negative 1%, a 0.1% of a growth rate, um, has to do with the policy, right? It's because of monetary tightening that they start to do since July last year. Um, you know, their interest rate has gone up very quickly from negative 0.5% to now 3.5%, the key policy rate. So um, as you um, know, right, when you have central bank rent rate hiking, that would in some ways reduce bank lending, it will reduce the credit flows to the economy. Mm -hmm. And so that would definitely, you know, hamper economic growth. So I think Germany and many, I think, European countries are now really facing this sort of uh, dilemma, right? The double whammy of, you know, kind of stagflation. So on the one hand, the economy has slowed down and they hit recession. But on the other hand, you know, inflation is still higher um, than what they would expect to be or want to be. Um, so, you know, that it's a very bad scenario to be in. Mm. And under such kind of economic scenario, how do you look at the Europe relations with China at this moment? What should they do? Right. It's definitely in their interest to, um, you know, cooperate with China um, because, um, you know, they have a lot of businesses that are looking to sell their products in China. They're really needing China's markets. And on the other hand, you know, they also um, need China as, you know, um, some of the uh, uh industrial products, intermediate goods, you know, if they can continue work with China and getting the, you know, cheap supplies of intermediate goods, um, that would also strengthen their own industrial production. So in a way, I think there's a lot of, um, you know, common economic interests uh, between Europe and China. And that's why you've seen, you know, so many European um, leaders come to China and try to cozy up the business relationships. And I think, you know, the French president also make it very clear that, you know, Europeans need to really think about their own interest instead of, you know, always taking, you know, the U.S.'s lead and follow the U.S.'s lead to um, have this sort of the earlier, you know, decoupling kinds of uh, initiatives. So I think, you know, there's a genuine economic interest and business interest um, for Europe to work with China and, you know, have that kinds of cooperative relationships and have some kind of policy coordinations. Um, because again, um, it's a globalized economy and any sort of fragmentation of trade or investment would result in some economic losses. But definitely the geopolitical concerns and interests are real. So I think it just takes, um, you know, wisdom. It takes courage um, for countries to kind of work together and find a common grounds. That's Yan Liang, Professor of Economics at Well Lambert University, speaking with my colleague Zhao Yan. You're listening to World Today. Stay tuned. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Yang. Saudi Foreign Minister Prince Faisal bin Fahan Al Saud says his country has invited Iran's President Abraham Raisi for an official visit. Prince Faisal met with his Iranian counterpart Hussein Amir Abdullahian in Tehran over the weekend. He became the first Saudi official to visit Tehran in about two decades. The two ministers held the re-establishment of diplomatic relations, which they said would be paramount to improving security across the region. This is the latest sign of a rapprochement between the two regional rivals. Saudi Arabia and Iran agreed to restore diplomatic ties in March in a landmark agreement signed in China. The move put an end to a seven-year rift that has stoked tensions in the Islamic world. 
For more, we are now joined on the line by Dr. Wang Jin, Associate Professor at Northwest University in Xi'an, China. Dr. Wang, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure. Uh, what's your takeaway from the meeting between the foreign ministers of Iran and Saudi Arabia? It is a very important meeting. Uh, of course, uh, on the one hand, it suggested that uh, the very uh, important achievement of the Rishpochmal process between Iran and Saudi Arabia, especially after Chinese mediation, uh, successful mediation between the two countries, uh, 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 restoring a diplomatic relationship in Beijing in this much. So it is a very continuation of this process. It is very important. And on the other hand, during this meeting, uh, the two ministers, the foreign ministers, they actually uh, achieved uh, some kind of the consensus, they reached the consensus, and also they are able to seek some common ground for the future of the, uh, 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 cooperative opportunities and for the future coordination, uh, not only maybe cover the regional affairs, but also for the bilateral relations, uh, economic and social cooperation. So it's very important a meeting for the two countries, and also it is a very important meeting for the future, uh, for the future uh, uh, status in the whole Middle East region. So that is why we call it a very historic moment, and also it will affect strongly affect this regional countries. Mm-hmm. And what do you make of their emphasis on mutual respect, non-interference, and commitment to the UN Charter as the center of bilateral relations going forward? I think they are trying to uh, construct the uh, new principles uh, or or emphasize the very important uh, new principles. Uh, although this kind of principle has already existed for decades, but uh, it is, I think, it is a fresh principle or the new principle that for the Middle Eastern countries, because traditionally uh, that uh, other external powers they trying to use the regional crisis, regional divisions to. Uh, to utilize this kind of the divisions to benefit themselves. And uh, the regional countries, they also are uh, 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 brought into this regional competition and regional crisis to compete with each other. Uh, so in the end, eventually, it, ha- it hurts everybody. But now the regional countries uh, realize that it's important to uh, to facilitate more cooperation based upon the respect and non-interference. And also, it's very important to... Uh, launch cooperation uh, based upon the commitment to the UN Charter. So that is why they put them into the very status of the center for the bilateral relations. So I think in the future, this kind, these principles, uh, mutual respect and the mutual uh, uh, non-intervention, and also their commitment to UN uh, ch- Charters will be much more highlighted in other uh, regional occasions. It will be very leading principles for the, all the regional countries. It will change the tra- traditional uh, landscape uh, that uh, be that be felt with uh, divisions and the competition in this region. Mm-hmm. Well, given the complex and multi-layered conflicts in the Middle East, how do you think the evolving relationship between Iran and Saudi Arabia will reshape the broader geopolitical landscape in the region? I think it will bring the region into the more peaceful and more stable. Uh, scenario because uh, because traditionally, as we mentioned, that uh, Saudi Arabia and the Iran they are very very important. Uh, although to some extent, actually, they are the leading uh, to the powers in the region. Uh, Saudi Arabia is the leader of the Arab states and also has a very important influence in the Sunni Islamic world. While Iran are the leader of the Shia uh, uh, Shia world and also Shia Islamic world and also have the very strong influence in some regional countries. So the two countries, when the two countries are in a status of competition, they will hurt everybody. But now the two countries, they try to reestablish ties uh, based upon the principles of mutual respect and non-interference. So this kind of the bilateral tension will be largely and strongly eased. And on the other hand, it will lead to the atmosphere uh, that the benefit to the original peace and the original cooperation, it will finally benefit everybody in this region. So that's why we call that it will uh, positively reshape the geopolitical landscape in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Well, economic cooperation and trade have been highlighted as the key aspects of the renewed relationship. So how do you think uh, the improved relationship will benefit both sides in this regard? Uh, I think the economic cooperation uh, was and will be will continue to be a very important driving force for the two countries' uh, uh, diplomatic 
relationship restoring. Uh, because uh, for for Saudi Arabia, they uh, they have a large resolve, a large sum of the uh, energy resolve, uh, and energy resolve as well as energy revenues. So they hope to utilize this energy uh, revenues abroad, especially to some other neighboring countries, to benefit, uh, to, to earn much more benefit. And then this kind of revenues will uh, will become the very important driving forces to transform uh, Saudi Arabia from the very traditional energy dependent country to uh, to to the country that enjoys the 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 status of uh, industrial and green energy and other high tech development uh, state. So this, so they hope to to finish this uh, project with next decade, and that's why they hope to seek uh, cooperative opportunities with other neighboring countries, especially Iran. Iran is also a energy uh, is a country with very uh, strong energy resource, but the Iran has also a very uh, big uh, internal market. And Iran also have the a lot of there are also a lot of cooperative economic opportunities inside Iran. So they also hope to attract more foreign investments to improve their economic situation. So that's why there were some a lot of some uh, economic cooperative opportunities between them, and also these opportunities will lead the two countries much closer ties, especially economic closer ties in the future. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Dr. Wang Jin, Associate Professor at Northwest University in Xi'an, China. And that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. To listen to this episode again or to catch up on previous episodes, you can download our podcast by searching World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.